The following is a paid commercial program, and the views expressed are those of the speaker and do not reflect the views or opinions of iHeartRadio, its staff, or management. Welcome to Issues That Matter, a weekly program featuring interesting topics and fascinating guests. Each week, Issues That Matter tackles the concerns of people across all spectrums. And now, with this week's edition of Issues That Matter, here are your hosts, Edward King and Kristen Hurley. Yeah, Mark, thank you very much. And Kristen, here we are with a very interesting and wonderful guest that we want to share with you. Yeah, we're all going to get an education today. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so am I, actually. So our guest's name is Joanna Schwartz, and I ran across her because I was literally reading her book. And when I finished reading her book, which we'll talk about in just a minute, I just thought really more people need to read this book because it's a very important topic, which, of course, we'll, we'll share. But, you know, sometimes you just find books that are not as published with enough information publicity that really needs to get out there because this subject that we're going to talk about, which is a delicate subject in many ways, but it's a subject that we all, doesn't matter which side of the aisle or political spectrum or any of your beliefs, this is a situation that affects all of us because we all could be in this situation or we want to be able to protect everybody that could find themselves in this situation. So our guest is Joanna Schwartz. She was um, a, a 20 years, she was a civil rights attorney down there in New York. Um, she, currently, she is professor of law at UCLA School of Law, 15 years actually. And by the way, that's one of the top schools, law schools in the country. She currently teaches civil procedure and a variety of other courses, including things on police accountability and public interest lawyering. She also received UCLA's Distinguished Teaching Award in 2015, and that's that's a high award. And she served as the Vice Dean for Faculty Development during two years, 17 through 19. She's written numerous articles and commentaries and five books. And the book that we're going to feature today is her 2023 book called Shield It, How the Police Became Untouchable. And I'm telling you again, this book is a must-read. And the reason why is because it's so well balanced and so well presented, but she also brings many real life stories so that we can understand that it's uh, it's a situation that affects all of us. So, Joanne, I want to say welcome and thank you so much for joining our show. Oh, thank you so much for having me and for that really kind and generous introduction. No, it's an honest introduction. And I, I must say, I've watched three of your videos on uh, YouTubes and so forth and other interviews. And, you know, I'm very pleased, especially with your book. And I know that you had mentioned in our earlier conversations that you had been working on it for 15 years. <laughs> how, how, did you, how, how did you get through that journey? 15 years is a long time. <laughs> It is a long time. Well, I, I, I've certainly come to it honestly. I uh, I began my legal career in New York, as you mentioned, as a civil rights attorney um, and practiced there for a handful of years 
Um, and during my uh, work in, in New York as a civil rights attorney, there were a lot of questions that came up that were that were percolating in my brain that I didn't have the time to research or study or, or answer about the way in which civil rights litigation worked. I had decided to go into this career with a belief that it was important to vindicate people's constitutional rights and that bringing lawsuits on their behalf would both compensate people who had been mistreated, but also improve the system as a whole. Mm -hmm. uh, but as I was practicing, I started having questions about just how well that system worked. And when I became a law professor at UCLA, I started empirically examining the questions that I first posed to myself as a young lawyer about how this system worked. Mm -hmm. And it seems like every time I did a study trying to understand one aspect of the system, that study raised another three questions to uh, empirically yes. examine. And then the next thing you know, 15 years had passed. And um, it was really after George Floyd was murdered in May of 2020 that I thought about writing this book um, to try to lay out, explain to a readership that doesn't read law review articles for fun, right. uh, how the system works and all the various pieces um, in the system that make it so difficult for people to get justice when their rights have been violated. Right. And so why don't we start out, and I shared with you and asked you to, to share a, an example, a story about Mario Romero in Vallejo, California, and, you know, his sad story. So starting out, I, I understand that literally it occurred in front of a house, in a, and the, he and a friend were in a car, and the family was literally at the window looking outside. So walk us through this experience. Yeah, this was a um, an early morning in September of 2012. And uh, Mario Romero had just uh, pulled up to his family's home in Vallejo, California, which is about uh, 30 miles east of Oakland. Um, he was with his sister's boyfriend. And... Two Vallejo police officers drove up um, at the time. Apparently, they had thought that Mario Romero's car looked similar to a car that had been involved in a drive-by shooting. Um, earlier in the evening, Mario Romero and his friend had nothing to do with that shooting. Mm -hmm. But the officers stopped their car, shined a spotlight on the men, pulled out their guns, um, and the officers claim that Mario Romero got out of his car and uh, was was reaching into his waistband for a gun. But mm -hmm. Romero's family was standing at the window looking outside and saw um, he stayed in his car the entire time. And the officers uh, just shot repeatedly into the car, killing Mario Romero. And, and one of the officers even... Uh, got onto the hood of the car, um, reloaded his weapon, and continued shooting into this to this right. car until Romero was was dead. So, um, yeah, I don't want to interrupt you, but no, no, you know, it's at this point that you know people need to recognize the actions that occurred so that they can have a balanced approach to understanding the picture. So what we have is we have two people sitting in the front seats of a Thunderbird, sitting in a residential area, sitting in front of their house, ready to be able to get out of the car. 
a police car and multiple eventually rolled up, shined the spotlight on the car, and then went over to interact with the individuals. And the reaction by the officer, his, happens, his name happens to be Sean Kennedy, um, was an overreaction. My understanding from the the people watching from the house that the two people in the car were sitting with their hands up. The officer said that the driver or one person had reached, supposedly reached into their, you know, pant area. And his reaction was, oh, they're having a gun. Okay. Well, the reality about guns is it only takes one bullet if that is the truth. But instead, what this Sean Kennedy did, as you had mentioned, is that he had so much firepower and time at that, that he even reloaded his gun. You had brought out the point that he was standing on the hood of the gun, of the car, shooting down into the car. And the person that died, Romero, had 30 gunshot wounds to his head, neck, and torso. That's that's right. And and I think that that beyond even um, these events, it's important to pull back the the lens and and mm -hmm. know more about Officer Sean Kenny, because this was um, the, the killing of Mario Romero was the third a uh, person or uh, one of three people that right. Sean Kenny killed within that year, within the span Five of just a, a few months. Five months. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason I tell the story of Mario Romero um, and of Sean Kenny is to put a, a spotlight on the Vallejo Police Department, which, um, as I say in the book, Sean Kenny might sound like a, a bad apple, a, a bad officer, but in the city of Vallejo, there were many officers who were engaging in similar conduct. And there was even a group of officers who would bend their badges to celebrate fatal shootings mm. at barbecues um, and at bars. And none of those officers were disciplined or fired. Um, in fact, Sean Kenny uh, ended up leaving the police department on his own accord and opened up a consulting firm to train officers and departments mm -hmm. um, about use of force and other police powers. Maybe and part of what train, train himself first. Yes, right, exactly. But part of why I tell this story is to illustrate that the Supreme Court has made it very difficult to hold local governments responsible for misconduct by their officers. Right. Um, and even with all of the bad conduct um, engaged in by, by Officer Kenny and others in the Vallejo Police Department, there has still never been a finding that the city of Vallejo has done anything wrong in terms of supervising and training and disciplining their officers. Right. And we're going to get back to that part of the story. But first, you know, let's go to the beginning. So we have the law and we have the history. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like not just the big question of how did we get here now. Mm -hmm. It really is the transition from the Civil War mm -hmm. because, you know, everyone should know that, you know, the law has a history. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's not just something that we idyllically came up with yesterday. So there, 
there's a transition, a domino thing, and then there's the interaction of the Supreme Court and there's others. And I don't want to spend our entire hour together talking about this, but I think it's very important to mm-hmm. have context. So yeah. start us off with the section 1983 from all the way back from 1871. Sure. Here, please. Sure. So the 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 ability to sue police officers and other government officials for constitutional violations mm-hmm. um, is a, a right that people have because of a statute that um, is referred to now as Section 1983 for where it sits in the United States Code, but it was originally part of what was called the Civil Rights Act or also referred to as the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. And it was a statute that was enacted during Reconstruction following the Civil War at the time that the Ku Klux Klan was forming and gaining power and terrorizing and killing Black Americans, particularly Mm -hmm. in the South, where local law enforcement was doing nothing to stop the violence, if not contributing to the violence themselves. And Congress, having heard um, testimony about these horrors, passed the Ku Klux Klan Act to give people the power to file a lawsuit um, in federal court because there was a view that the state courts were really overtaken by um, local forces and were not going to preserve people's civil rights. So this was a statute allowing people to sue for constitutional violations in federal court in 1871. And um, as I describe in the book, the Supreme Court's decisions relatively quickly after 1871 um, took the wind out of Section 1983's sales, made it very difficult to bring cases um, under that statute. But as the... uh, decades passed and the civil rights movement began picking up steam, there was an increased understanding that the federal government needed to step in to address civil rights abuses. And in 1961, 90 years after the statute was enacted, the Supreme Court first recognized that Section 1983 could be used to sue um, law enforcement officers who had violated people's civil rights. Well, it's interesting to me that it literally took that many years. Now, <laughs> I just want to take people back to the post-Civil War era, and I don't want to just, you know, look at all the harms and all the errors that were made, but, you know, understanding the the social and economic environment, what occurred was we had a civil war, which was to keep the country together and to... Um, benefit of the removal of slavery. But after the the, the defeat of the South, it doesn't change the hearts and minds of that agriculturally based society. So even though there are people in the South and the North and everybody who opposed slavery, it didn't necessarily take it out of its, um, you know, its skeleton infrastructure. As you had mentioned, the reason why they went to the federal courts is because the local municipalities and and state level courts were still part of the South. Am am I correct about that? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Uh, So then you came into 1961 and we had the Monroe situation. Tell us how that helped open up the doors and move us forward. Well, 
uh, Monroe versus Pape is the name of the Supreme Court decision from 1961 that first allowed people to bring these kinds of cases. And um, that story is a, is a is a powerful one itself. Um, James Monroe and his children and his wife were asleep in their Chicago apartment when uh, police officers broke down the door uh, without a warrant um, and got Mr. Monroe and his wife out of bed, held them and uh, beat him, um, not wearing any clothes in his own living room, um, and then assaulted uh, the children as they came into the room to find out what was going on. And Mm -hmm. he'd been wrongfully arrested. A a woman had picked him out of a lineup and said that, that he had killed her husband, which was, which was not true. Um, But uh, that case um, was uh, taken up by the ACLU of um, Chicago and the ACLU decided to try to use Section 1983, even though it hadn't been used before, um, to try to bring this case in federal court, recognizing that just like in 1871, a state court in Illinois was was not likely to find in favor of this Black family against a politically connected set of Chicago police officers. Um, And the lower courts had said, no, no, you can't use Section 1983. You have to bring this claim in state court. But the Supreme Court disagreed and Mm -hmm. said Section 1983 could be used for this purpose. And the cases um, immediately after um, Monroe versus Pape talk about the importance of being able to bring this kind of claim in terms of uh, benefiting the individuals uh, to, to compensate them for the harms that they'd suffered, and also as a deterrent to try to prevent these kinds of claims from happening again. Mm-hmm. And after Monroe versus Pape was decided, it really did open the courthouse doors um, to people whose rights had been violated. And there was um, many more cases that were brought under this statute. Um, but as I describe in the book, with those increased claims came a lot of concern that the courthouses were going to be flooded with frivolous cases. And um, those cases were going to take up the time and attention of officers and of local governments, and that there needed to be restrictions on the right to sue um, to prevent those anticipated harms from happening. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get into that, but I do want to you know, highlight what you just said recently, which was that it opened the doors for other types of cases. So it wasn't really just limited to police brutality or racial biases. Didn't it open up the opportunity for, you know, these improper land use decisions or even school allocations and other ways? So it really was a beneficial Supreme Court edict Am I correct on that? Sure. Right. Yeah. So before before Monroe versus Pape, there was really not a recognized way to um, bring a suit seeking remedies for constitutional violations. So mm-hmm. the protections in the bill the Bill of Rights um, existed on paper, but there wasn't a mechanism to enforce them essentially. Mm -hmm. And that is what Section 1983 did. It was a police misconduct case um, that that 
first recognized this right under Section 1983. But yes, Section 1983 is the way uh, it's referred to as a cause of action, is the vehicle that you can use to vindicate um, all of the protections in the Bill of Rights. Right. So maybe even a funny thought process is the horrible situation that happened to the Monroe family actually has benefited our society as a whole. Wouldn't you agree with that? Well, sure. I mean, we certainly, <laughs> you know, in these, there there are all of many moments in our history of tragedy that have then resulted in um, advancements in protections and improvements in the law. Um, and, uh, and that case certainly was a, an incredibly important step in the in the uh, process toward more civil and constitutional rights. I, I'll say I, I met um, Houston Stevens, who was James Monroe's son. Um, mm. I met him a few months ago and he had read the book. I, I interviewed him for the book, but, and he had read the book and his, his son and daughter had read the book and they were all, um, extremely moved by the role that their case, that their family's case, um, has played in the tapestry of civil rights enforcement mm-hmm. in our country. And I don't think that they had quite appreciated how central their family's case was to the the, the protection of civil rights in our country. Joanna, this is all so fascinating, and I'm really glad we have you on today. And I I think I want to back up just a little bit. There's so many nuances to all of this. And it's, to be honest, you know, a a path that I haven't really thought through myself um, too extensively. So I'm really Mm -hmm. grateful for this opportunity and all of our listeners too. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting. And maybe you can help define, right? We as citizens in the United States, we have civil rights, right? Constitutional rights. Well, police officers as people do as well, right? Sure. They're, they're humans walking around the planet too. The of constitution course. applies to them. But what is really interesting in the capacity acting as a officer of the law, mm-hmm. working for whatever jurisdiction or you know town or county or entity as law officers, do, how is it that they do, how do I say this? They have qualified immunity mm-hmm. that somehow changes or doesn't change their civil rights as well. Do you want to help discuss what qual- what gives them qualified immunity, acting in the capacity, doing their job as employees? Um, the nuances between, you know, how they violate someone else's civil rights or someone else is violating their civil rights. How does that work? <laughs> sure. And so really twisted. No, no, there's, these are really nuanced uh, circumstances here. Absolutely. And I think it's I think it's really important to to try to to try to piece all of these things out, which is partially the reason why I re- wrote this book, because. There's so much conversation back and forth, you know, on Twitter or social media or, you know, sound bites in news programs that really don't allow you the opportunity to take a breath and understand how all of these pieces fit together. And, and so I'm really delighted to have this conversation. Um, you're absolutely right that that police officers and government officials are also people protected by the Constitution and by the Bill of Rights. Um, and Section 1983 
is um, really focused and, and the Bill of Rights is focused on um, the rights people have against government or with regard to mm-hmm. government. So, um, of course, police officers are also protected by those uh, protections as it relates to their interactions with government um, and other officers, for example, or other um, other employees of the, the government. Um, but when we're talking about the protections of the Bill of Rights and the protections afforded by Section 1983, it, it is it is the rights of people, whether police officers or government officials or or um, everyday folks um, against uh, government officials, government um, officials who are acting um, in their power in, in the government. Mm-hmm. Right. And what um, the, the Bill of Rights has a series of protections. Often when we think about police cases, we're thinking about the Fourth Amendment, um, which is a protection against unreasonable searches and seizures. Um, and when you think about those those kinds of uh, constitutional protections or you think about that phrase, unreasonable searches and seizures, certainly when I think about that, I think about it in terms of, of what protections I have. If I've done nothing wrong, uh, but I get arrested or or assaulted or shot, mm-hmm. um, that sounds unreasonable. But But actually, the way in which the Supreme Court has interpreted the Fourth Amendment, it's reasonableness in the eyes of the officer. Was it reasonable for the officer to arrest that person? Did they have a reason to believe that they had done something wrong? Did the officer reasonably use force or or shoot or use a baton or whatever it is against a person? Did they reasonably believe that that person was posing a threat at the time? And so there is this um, uh, reasonableness from the perspective of the officer built in already to the way in which the Supreme Court's interpreted the constitutional protections as they stand. In addition to that uh, understanding of the Fourth Amendment, there is this, um, what I refer to as a shield, um, called qualified immunity, which is not part of Section 1983, and it's not part of the Constitution, but it is a protection that the Supreme Court created in 1967 um, at the time, they referred to it as a good faith defense. So right. if defense, if an officer reasonably believed that they were following the law, um, they should be protected from, from damages, liability opposed, imposed against them. But the Supreme Court has repeatedly strengthened qualified immunities protections. Um, they've gotten rid of the good faith standard. Um, so you can have bad faith and still get qualified immunity mm-hmm. so long as the officer hasn't violated what the Supreme Court calls clearly established law. And what that's come to mean is that a person uh, whose rights have been violated or who alleges that their rights have been violated has to show not only that the officer acted unreasonably when they used force against them or arrested them, but that they can point to a prior court decision where an officer used similar force under similar circumstances. 
And the line drawing has gotten very extreme, which is why I think there is so much public criticism of qualified immunity. Um, Cases where um, I talk in the book about a a case where a a man who was uh, suspected of burglaring a home um, was sitting down, hands in the air, he had surrendered and police released their police dog on him. Um, and the dog uh, attacked him and and harmed him. Um, he brought a lawsuit uh, saying these officers uh, violated my constitutional rights. And there is a very clear um, constitutional understanding that it is excessive force to use force on a person who has surrendered. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And there was even a prior case that had said in that very in that very uh, court of appeals uh, jurisdiction that had said it's unconstitutional to release a police dog on a person who has surrendered by lying down. But the court granted the officers in this case, qualified immunity, finding that there were enough factual distinctions between a person lying down in surrender and a person sitting up with their hands in the air in so that's nuance for you. Right. That, so that, interesting how yeah. one is one thing and one is the other. And who gets to decide? <laughs> it's absolutely uh true. And 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 you know, this is this is a, where a lot of my empirical research has has focused on qualified immunity. And you know, one of the justifications for the doctrine is that it it puts officers on notice, you know, that what they were doing was wrong. But officers don't actually read these cases. You know, they, they're not, they don't read hundreds or thousands of cases that um, rule on qualified immunity. They, they actually just learn these broad principles, like mm-hmm. that you shouldn't use force against a person who has surrendered. Um, so the idea that an officer would actually read all of these cases and then remember them and then and then know what to do out in the field. Exactly. It, <laughs> it, it really doesn't make any any logical sense. Mm-hmm. But you, you pointed to one problem that is these prior court decisions. But my understanding is many prior court decisions are not getting, um, what's the right word? Listed, <laughs> reported, published, reported, published. Yes. Yes. And so at that point, if they're not published, my understanding is the current case cannot point back to an unpublished court decision. Yeah. Yeah. Is that correct? That is correct. I mean, that this is there's variation in different parts of the country. So um, we here in California are in what's called the Ninth Circuit Court of mm-hmm. Appeals. And here in California, if there's a bunch of unpublished decisions, they can still clearly establish the law for qualified immunity purposes. But that's not true in other parts of the country. And these, I should say, these um, there's a decision uh, when there's an opinion that's been issued to the parties. Mm-hmm. The judge, uh, the judge also has a decision to make about whether to designate the opinion as one that is quote unquote published. Um, And what that used to mean, it used to mean much more than it does now when it it used to mean more in the time where there wasn't all of the electronic databases that we have and the ability to to look at everything online. It it used to be that when a case was decided, when there was an opinion in a case, 
the judges had to decide whether to literally publish it in the books of court opinions that Mm -hmm. lawyers uh, would look at when they were, um, you know, briefing their cases and arguing their cases. So publication used to uh, be reserved for only the most um, important or consequential decisions because there was simply a a limit in in how many opinions could be published. Um, Now, (laughs) you know, we have virtually limitless ability to consult um, decisions online. And so this, this designation of published or unpublished opinions doesn't, isn't really necessary, but, but it ends up meaning that there's, it's even more difficult to find these cases that would clearly establish the law. Now, I have another point relevant to this area, but we need to take a quick break for our sponsors. You're listening to Issues That Matter with Edward King and Kristen Hurley on Business Sense Radio, and we will be right back. Freedom Fest 2023 is coming to the home of the blues and birthplace of rock and roll, Memphis, Tennessee, July 12th through 15th. The ultimate summit for liberty and financial freedom hosted by Fox Business, Lisa Kennedy. Attend our global financial summit, four days of investment advice, dozens of financial experts. Use promo code BIZ50 and save 50 bucks off. That's B-I-Z-5-0. Reserve your spot at freedomfest.com. See you in Memphis. Business owners, do you want to build a successful business? Invest in your most valuable asset, your staff. Alliance Career Training Solutions solve your staff training needs. Employees need to be successful for you to be successful. At Alliance Career Training, we provide professional, hands-on training classes, including Excel, Word, Business Writing, Outlook, and Sexual Harassment as required by law. Ask about our custom classes for your team. Call 755-8200 or visit us at AllianceTrains.com. Thank you very much. We are back with Joanna Schwartz and her book, and it's a very important book, and we're going to talk more about it. But there's a kind of a follow-up situation in regards to what we were just talking about. We were talking about the qualified immunity protection and how it's been really kind of reserved in terms of being able to actually utilize it. Then we went on to talk about the prior court decisions, which could be not included in the decision of the current case in some cases. But then there's also another thing in terms of, you know, the the person who has been harmed has to come out and do a civil suit in regards to their constitutional, you know, violations. But talk to us about the problem about how they aren't able to know exactly what injustices occurred because of the fact that when they do um, sue and and want the information from the police, there's resistance on the part of police departments of even sharing any of the facts. Yeah. So this is this is another um, catch twenty two. I would say um, mm-hmm. in our civil justice system. Uh, and it it is really built into uh, another requirement that the Supreme Court created, um, requiring that when you file a lawsuit, um, the initial paper is called a complaint, and that's supposed to um, set out what happened and what kind of relief you're entitled to. Mm-hmm. Um, and since the 
1938, when these um, rules for federal court were first issued, the, the language was that there was need only be a short and plain statement of the entitlement to relief. The Supreme Court in 2007 and again in 2009 said these complaints need to have a plausible entitlement to relief, which sounds like a, a, a minor shift, but has been understood to mean that plaintiffs have to have um, enough facts in their complaint to uh, proceed with their with their case. And sometimes um, the 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 person or their family knows enough about their case just from witnessing it. Yeah to include a plausible and a claim for relief. I, I think Mario Romero's family who were witnessing what happened were, were mm-hmm. able to include those facts. But in a case where a person has died in custody and there aren't witnesses to mm-hmm. what happened beyond the police department, it can be very difficult to include the necessary facts. And I tell the story in the book of a woman named Tony Tim, a woman named Vicki Timpa, whose son, Tony, was killed in Dallas Police Department custody. She had no idea how it was that he died. And, and when she tried to reach out to people in the Dallas Police Department, they gave her a variety of stories, um, none of which um, rang true. And uh, the Dallas Police Department actually had body camera video from the officers on the scene. But as a matter of Texas law, they weren't required to turn that information over to Vicki Timpa. So she filed a lawsuit. She found a lawyer willing to represent her and she she filed a lawsuit. But the lawsuit didn't name the individual officers involved because she did not have that information and and couldn't say exactly how it was that he had died. Mm -hmm. The Dallas Police Department then moved to dismiss her case because it didn't state a plausible entitlement to relief, even though the Dallas Police Department had all the information that they needed to know exactly what had happened to Tony Tempa. Um, and the case very well could have been dismissed on those grounds. But Vicki Timpa's lawyer filed a second lawsuit demanding the information be turned over. And they were able to negotiate a settlement in that second case <laughs> to get the body camera video turned over. And she was able to include more detail in her complaint and, and get past that motion to dismiss but there's many situations where the a person will not be able to um, find a lawyer who's willing to bring not one but two lawsuits to try to get this information. Um, and in certainly in some cases, there won't be any body camera video or, or other evidence right. about what happened. And in those cases, it can be very difficult to get past this initial complaint standard. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, which is very, you know, very, uh, very disturbing in a, in a case like this. And so how many of these cases actually do make it uh, <laughs> to trial or court? I, you have two chapters in your book, getting back to your book. Yeah. Uh, judges and juries mm-hmm. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> for actual when it makes it to trial. Tell us a little bit about how many co- of these cases actually do get in, in front of a judge or before a jury. And how does that work? Yeah, well, so the I mean, the cases do the, every case um, 
is assigned to a judge and um and and those judges as i talk about in the judges chapter have have a lot of discretion and power to to um guide the way the cases make it go through the the pretrial litigation process and also to trial um relatively few cases actually make it to trial and i looked at almost 1200 police misconduct cases in five federal districts across the country. And, and a lot of the findings from that research is incorporated in the book um, in a way that I think and hope is very accessible to readers. Um, but what I found in looking at those almost 1,200 cases um, was that less than 7% went to trial. Um, and uh, that was a total of uh, 79 cases out of the almost 1,200 cases that I studied. And juries entered verdicts for plaintiffs in just 12 of those 79 cases, which is about um, 1% of the cases that were filed and about 15% of the cases that went to a jury. Wow. That, that's a terrible lose rate. It is a terrible. <laughs> it's shrunk real fast. It is a terrible lose rate, and and you know part of what I talk about in the book, part of the goal of the book is explaining the many many barriers to relief in these cases there mm-hmm. that, that that come into play well before trial. Uh, you know, it's challenging to find a lawyer in these cases. It's challenging to plead the complaint with sufficient facts. Challenging to get past. The constitutional standard, challenging to get past qualified immunity, challenging to show, uh, establish a basis for local government responsibility. And it's only after you've checked all of those boxes that you can get to trial. (laughs) So the fact that the cases that actually go to trial have managed to overcome all of those barriers and still only 15% of them result in a plaintiff's verdict. That's amazing. And the book is called Shield It, How the Police Became Untouchable. It's a very balanced book, very informative, filled with stories. And I, again, I put it on a must-read list for our <laughs> listeners. Now, moving on to this, because, you know, you're, you're painting a very, almost a sad story. Um, you know, obviously, there are criminals out there that have effectively killed police. There are police out there that have effectively killed innocent people by accident or, you know, through malice or whatever. So I want to address two things. We want to talk about the meaningful accountability for law enforcement, right? And then we want to spend the rest of our hour talking about how we can move forward. So just, you know, some of the bullet points that I collected from your book for meaningful accountability is some of the problems are prosecutors are disinclined to bring charges against the police. The thing thing that surprised me that you pointed out in your book that jurors are reluctant, the juries are reluctant to indict. The big problem that I see is that the police department's internal affair units are not wholly engaged in self-policing the police, like which is what we thought that they were designed to do. And that, you know, the criminal cases, it's more in the civil suits that seem to be the only viable tool for us harmed citizens to actually muster up and, and you know, get some relief from all of this. 
And then the last part of it is the cities and the counties, whether it's a sheriff department or a police department, they're not removing offending officers and they don't seem to be instituting effective internal rules or programs, training programs to reduce the likelihood of this continuing. And, you know, I, I know I just threw five major <laughs> points at you, mm-hmm. but let's talk about the cities. I mean, they just seem to like want to continue with this. And I don't understand. Well, I think that, um, there are a lot of parts of government that are contributing to the current state of affairs. Um, and, and you're right, even after there is a finding of wrongdoing or, or general agreement that something wrong has happened, um, it can be very difficult to hold officers responsible. Um, and part of this has to do with um, the kinds of protections that have been put in place through law enforcement officers, bills of rights, um, and union agreements that limit um, limit the ability uh, of departments to do investigations, limit the kind of information they can assess. And, and even when there is a finding of wrongdoing by a police department, uh, law enforcement officers' bills of rights often have um, appeals processes, arbitration processes that lead to those findings being overturned. Mm-hmm. Um, within the the cities, I've, I've also found that um, police departments have very little financial responsibility in these cases. Um, the money to pay settlements and judgments um, does not come from the police department's budget, but from central funds, um, which uh, ironically, or perhaps um, tragically, is, is the money is often taken from parts of the budget um, that are earmarked for the the least powerful, the least politically powerful in our societies, which mm-hmm. can often be the very people who are subject to disproportionate levels of uh, police force. And police departments, in my research, um, I have found that they they often don't gather and analyze information from these suits with an eye to prevent future similar harms from happening. Instead, they're they're simply treated as the cost of doing business. And mm. I do think that this is, um, it, it means that the fact that there's so many failures on behalf of our state and local governments means that there's, there's a lot to do. And, and I think that um, there is, bipartisan agreement that mm-hmm. things should be done. I mean, the focus yeah. of my book is on what what kinds of systems should we have in place when officers violate the law, when they violate people's rights, when they engage in misconduct. And mm-hmm. I hope that people can come to that question, even if they have varying views about um, what policing should look like, you know, how, how often police um, violate the law. And and I hope that we can move away from some of the partisan, um, you know, the the partisan conversations about this issue. I think that there's actually much more agreement um, and disagreement, much more common ground. Much more common ground. But as I was pointing out, and I don't mean to just rehash this situation, as we had mentioned and you mentioned in your book about the city of Vallejo, which is Mm -hmm. in California, the officer, Sean Kenny, was promoted mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. after this. Yeah. S- secondly, you had brought out that he had killed three separate men during a five-month period. But within the hundred police that were on this force, there was even this specialty group, and you didn't mention it, called the Fatal 14. Yeah. Uh, where 14 ongoing officers had a ongoing history of fatal shootings. Yeah. And you had mentioned about the barbecue and things like that. And of course, there's always disputes and that never happened and all of that kind of stuff. But the reality was, if you look at the broader numbers within that 100-man force, there was a lot of brutality or going over the top in regards. And if you look at the demographics of that town, you know, it, originally there was a naval base there at Mer, Mer Island, and it was literally a blue-collar town. It wasn't just a skewed demographics in terms of the, the ethnic makeup of the city. So there really wasn't anything other than this is a good example of America. Mm. And unfortunately, right here in California, you know, California bears a responsibility for the entire United States. Mm. Because, you know, so many people, at least historically, used to look at us as leading our country. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm not very happy with where California is leading (laughs) our country now. Mm. But I don't want to focus on that. Unfortunately, we have to take another quick break. So we need to take a quick break for our sponsors. You're listening to Business Sense Radio, Issues That Matter with Edward King and Kristen Hurley and our very special guest today, Joanne Schwartz and her book, Shield It. We'll be right back. Freedom Fest 2023 is coming to the home of the blues and birthplace of rock and roll, Memphis, Tennessee, July 12th through 15th. The ultimate summit for liberty and financial freedom hosted by Fox Business, Lisa Kennedy. Attend our global financial summit. Four days of investment advice, dozens of financial experts. Use promo code BIZ50 and save 50 bucks off. That's B-I-Z-5-0. Reserve your spot at freedomfest.com. See you in Memphis. Business owners, do you want to build a successful business? Invest in your most valuable asset, your staff. Alliance Career Training Solutions solve your staff training needs. Employees need to be successful for you to be successful. At Alliance Career Training, we provide professional, hands-on training classes, including Excel, Word, business writing, Outlook, and sexual harassment as required by law. Ask about our custom classes for your team. Call 755-8200 or visit us at AllianceTrains.com. Okay, we're back, and we, we have so little time, three more minutes. So what I want to do is, Joanne, where do we go now? What's what's the point about forward-looking po- policy changes, better training of our police officers, and can we fix our general population? Because if, if we weren't such a violent society <laughs> and, and crazed out, you know, we wouldn't be dealing with this. But forward-looking policies help us there. <laughs> well, there's there are there is so much that could be done to improve the current state of affairs. And, you know, I, I don't aim in this book to solve all of the problems that we have yeah. in our society, but rather to take a, a, a narrower look at simply um, uh, how we should respond when officers violate the the law. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that there's much more that that can be done. In in my ideal world, um, officers would not be, and, and usually they're not, held personally, financially responsible for these cases. Uh, I, they are often, and I think they should be, 
paid by local government budgets, but that that there could be more of a feedback loop and responsibility for the police departments. And there could be um, more consequences, meaningful consequences to officers who violate the law mm-hmm. um, and more done to, to learn from these cases. And I and I I lay out a number of changes that that certainly they could happen at the Supreme Court level or Congress, but I actually think some of the most important work is going to happen at the state and and even more so at the local level by city councils across the country um, who can uh, create um, better better systems to to understand um, and learn from and not repeat the mistakes of of prior cases. Um, and I, I set up some details in the in the book about how to how to accomplish that. Um, but I, I do think that making a system, uh, our system uh, more accountable, creating more government accountability is something that everyone can and, and should get behind. I mean, there was right. there was a recent study done polling showing that 85% of Republican voters agreed with both supporting law enforcement and holding them accountable for excessive use of force. And I think we've made a mistake in this society by thinking that those two goals of accountability um, and support for law enforcement don't, uh, you know, are, are incompatible with one another. I think they go hand in hand and, and we can point. work on this, both both goals together. Very good. Point. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I think we can all say can we all just obey the law, um, <laughs> no matter what sector you're talking about? Thank you so much, Joanna, for joining us. We just have another yeah, half a minute here. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you, where they can find your book, uh, reach out to you if they have further questions? Absolutely. My well, my website is joannaschwartz.net. So J-O-A-N-N-A-S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z dot net. And there you'll find a lot of information about my book, where to where to buy it if you're interested, and where to um, read uh, other things that I've done in the popular press um, and and clips on yeah. from television and, and the like. So you can learn a lot more there. Joanne, thank you so very much. This is a must-read book, everybody. Go on Amazon, buy it today. And we'll be back. Mark. All right. Thank you very much, Edward King. You've been listening to Issues That Matter with Edward King and Kristen Hurley. You can contact Edward and Kristen through our website, bcrradio.com. And be sure to join us again next week at the same time on this station for another edition of Issues That Matter. If you're listening in Monterey, Hour 2 is coming up right after the news. Preceding was a paid commercial program, and the views expressed are those of the speaker and do not reflect the views or opinions of iHeartRadio, its staff, or management.